We're in Job chapter 15. Last time we finished 14, obviously. And with the end of 14, we made it through the first lap of Job's advisors. So he's got three advisors, and each one of them has spoken. So we're now on the second go-around for each. And this one is Eliphaz, again. He was the first one who spoke, and so he's now the first one on the second lap. And the first time that he spoke was back in chapter 4. And his point there, and I'll pick it up in chapter 4, verse 7. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? So what his first speech said is, if you are innocent and upright, then why is this happening to you? And because this is happening to you, you can't be innocent and upright. So that was his first shot at things. And of course, Job refutes that because one of the things that he says is that I've seen lots of people who are not innocent and upright that prospered just fine. So the fact that somebody is innocent or upright doesn't necessarily protect them from God's wrath, nor does someone who is wicked necessarily suffer. Again, I had said earlier, worth repeating, is a lot of this stuff in Job from his advisors is not direct quotes, but saying stuff out of Proverbs. Slight digression. Solomon was regarded as the wisest man of his time. And in the East, wisdom is something that could be quantified. In other words, I can look at Mike here and say, boy, Mike is really smart. He's really a good man. He's really wise. Is Mike wiser than, yeah, well, I don't know. When I say in our culture, somebody's really wise, it's hard to quantify relative wisdom. It's hard to quantify who's wise. Here, wisdom was measured in terms of the number of parables that you had memorized. So you've all been through Proverbs more than once, and it's a series of mashalim, which are two or three line nuggets of wisdom, and it's the Eastern way of encoding wisdom. So a marshal is designed so that the first part of it sets up the subject, and then the second part makes a comment about that subject. And the idea is that it's not like Greek wisdom, which is strictly logical. It's intended to engender discussion. It's a way to teach the young. It's a way to pass on wisdom. Say, for example, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Everybody's heard that one. Well, what's the fear of the Lord mean? What's wisdom mean? And you then sit and talk about it, and it's intended to engender discussion as opposed to being a logical formula. So that style of wisdom did not originate with Solomon. In fact, the centers of wisdom were Babylon and Egypt. And in what was sort of regarded as kind of an intellectual backwater at the time, the idea that this guy Solomon could have wisdom rivaling the wisdom of Babylon and Egypt was a big deal. So coming back here, what his advisors are doing is talking to him in units of Eastern wisdom, which Solomon has codified in Ecclesiastes and in the book of Proverbs. And what Job says as they trot these things out is, yeah, I know that just as well as you do. I am as wise as you are. I know just as many of these Proverbs as you know. My wisdom is equal to yours. And I have considered these things in my own situation, 
and they do not apply. So for you to come and hit me up with these proverbs and say, hey, if you were in fact innocent, none of this would be happening to you. What I'm telling you is I am innocent, and it is happening to me. And furthermore, there are wicked people who are not innocent, and you and I have both observed them, and many of them go through life just fine. That's Job's argument. Chapter 15, verse 1. And this is Eliphaz again. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? So what he's saying is, Job, you're flapping your gums and it didn't do any good because the stuff you're saying isn't right. Verse 4. But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering mediation before God. Remember, one of the things that Job has been saying all along is, I would like to stand before God and present my case in the heavenly court. Now, he's got several problems with that that we've talked about in the past. Problem number one is there is nobody who can force God to come into court. There's no bailiff that he can send out and grab God and drag God into court so that they can stand together in judgment. It's a non-starter. He can't do that. And Job understands that. And he says, that's my first problem with requesting an audience. My second problem is the signature event that happens when somebody stands before God or Yeshua or an angelic being is they go down like a sack of bricks. They lose consciousness. They lose their knees. They lose their bowels. So what he's saying is, if I were to stand in front of God, I would really need him to refrain from being himself, is I guess the way I would describe it, because if I were to stand in his presence in all of his majesty, I would not be able to speak. In fact, I would not be able to maintain consciousness. So I've got these two real big problems taking God to court. But having said that, I'm innocent. And God's my prosecutor, and I really would like to have a hearing. So now what Eliphaz is saying is you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering mediation before God. So by saying, I am innocent and I want to stand up in the heavenly court and say so, what you've done is you have put God on a non-God plane, if you will. You are denying his sovereignty and his deity. And furthermore, by your stiff-necked behavior, you are removing the possibility of his mercy. So the idea then that God could mediate this and you would be able then to come out and go back into peace and go back into blessing, you're precluding that by the way that you're handling this, by insisting that you're justified and wanting to go before for God and demand justice. That's the last thing you want, bucko. What you really want is mercy and mediation. And by the way, as I have been saying all along, what I just said, you can get in any church in the country. Every pastor in the world, to include me, will say, you really don't want justice before God. What you want is mercy. So for these guys to be saying that, I mean, that's Judeo-Christianity 101. Verse 5, for your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. 
your own lips testify against you, which is what I've been saying. What Job is doing is being Clinton-esque. In Eliphaz's way of looking at things, it depends on what the meaning of is is. He's weasel wording. He is lawyer wording, if you will. He is saying things very precisely to make himself appear righteous. And what Eliphaz is saying is, huh, get off of it. Even the Clintons, when they stand in front of God, are not going to be able to talk their way out of that one. That's sort of what he's saying. Verse 7. Are you the first man who was born, or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you have the wisdom of Adam? The idea here is wisdom correlates with age. So are you the oldest man that ever lived? Do you have that wisdom of years? Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? So do you know the mind of God? Have you stood in his counsel? Have you, in fact, it doesn't say it here, but sort of the parenthetical thing is, are you one of God's advisors? And, oh, by the way, when God finally rebukes Job at the end of all this, he's going to say, you weren't one of my advisors. That's one of the things that God's going to say to Job. I didn't ask you for advice when I made all this. So you'll see this echoed later on. And do you limit wisdom to yourself? Are you the only wise man in the room? Verse 9. What do you know that we do not? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. And, by the way, everybody here says the same thing. I know as much as you do. So Eliphaz is saying to Job, we are just as wise as you are. Job is responding to his accusers, I am just as wise as you are. And again, as I said before, if these were not men of such stature and wisdom, this book would not have made it into the Bible. In other words, if this were your standard drug dealer on the hood, you hey man, what's up? Man? There wouldn't be anything remarkable here to write down. The fact that these guys are wise and knowledgeable is what makes this book useful. Verse 11. Are the comforts of God too small for you? Or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash? That you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth. So what he's rebuking him for is rebuking God. Or at least in his perspective, Job's speeches are a rebuke of God. And he's saying, is what God has for you not enough that you are going to speak this way to him? 14. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. A variation of this is something you can get in any church in the country. It is impossible for man to be righteous. It just goes with the territory of being human. You can't do it. Verse 7, I will show you, hear me, what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. Is this in parentheses in your version of the Bible? Okay. Eliphaz is saying, I am going to tell you wisdom. 
and the wisdom I am going to tell you, wise men have told, without hiding it, from their fathers. So this is wisdom that has been passed down from generation to generation. Because remember the thing he said back earlier, are you the first man born? In other words, are you the root source of all of the wisdom that has been passed down from generation to generation? And the rhetorical answer to that is no, you're not. And so now what he's saying is, I will tell you what that wisdom is. So let me read the sentence again now, verse 17. I will show you, hear me, what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. The wicked man rides in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. This is a marshal, by the way. It's a couplet. You have a wicked man rides in pain all his days, and then you have the ruthless throughout all the years. It's an ABBA pattern. Let me show you again. The wicked man, A, rides in pain all his days, B. Through all the years, B, that are laid up for the ruthless, A. Wicked matches ruthless, and in pain all his days, and all the years. That's a standard mashal. They're, they're all over Proverbs. They're all over Ecclesiastes. That's a sort of a classic example of the genre. And the idea there is it's not intended to be syllogistic. It's not a formula. It is a basis for teaching and discussion. Verse 21. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield because he has covered his face with its fat and gathered fat around his waist and has lived in desolate cities in houses that none should inhabit, which are ready to become heaps of ruin. What it's saying here is the wicked run against God with a shield, a buckler that is hard. One of the elements of the shield is fat, which is to say fat is protection against starvation. So in this metaphor, if you will, part of his shield is his fatness. And the idea is this guy is sleek, he's prosperous, he's fat, he's laid up stuff, and he's running against God. And what he's trusting in is the stuff that he has stored up, which, oh, by the way, he has gotten illegitimately. 29, he will not be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. So remember, we started off this business with the wicked are going to be in pain all their days and in agony all their years, right? And so what it's saying here is this guy who is trusting in the world, which is to say physical fat, stored up wealth, and so forth, as a shield against the Almighty, at the end of the day, it is not going to prevail. You've all seen Fiddler on the Roof, right? What's Tevye's wish for his wife? that she be fat and have a proper double chin. In that culture, being pleasantly plump is a sign of prosperity and it's a protection against starvation. Our culture is different and we don't think of fat that way. But in 
the Bible, that's what they're talking about. It's a protection against fortune. So 29 again. He will not be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. There's two things there. He will not be rich and his wealth will not endure, but he will not have a legacy. His possessions will not spread over the earth. He will not leave a legacy behind him. So everybody dies. And certainly most of us work to store up a little bit of wealth so that we're protected against the shocks of the world. Saving's a good thing. I'm not talking against that at all. Nor is God. But if you trust in those instead of trusting in God, they will eventually be stripped away. But the second thing that people work for is to pass something on to the next generation. So you store up wealth and fat, if you will, for your own protection, but you also want to store up enough so you can leave it for the next generation and you can have a legacy that lives on after it. And what this is saying is not only will his wealth be destroyed, but he won't leave a legacy. 30. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. He will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine, and cast off his blossoms like the olive tree. This is talking about legacy. So if you have no fruit and you have no blossoms, that means that there is no follow-on plant. 34. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. So this is sort of a general treatise on the evil of whom Eliphaz thinks Job might be a member. We're all the way to chapter 16. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? In other words, stuff it. Keep it to yourself. I don't want to hear it. Verse 4. I could also speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? What he's saying is, and he'll say it, more clearly later, you guys are sitting there, fat, happy, comfortable. I'm sitting here covered in boils, sitting in ashes, and if our positions were switched, I would be able to talk all this happy talk just like you can. So he's saying, I know everything you know. I could do this just as well as you could if our positions were reversed. And it isn't doing me any good. And the other thing he's saying is, I would hope that I would be of more comfort to you than you are to me. Verse 6, but if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? So what he's saying is, you're rebuking me for my words. You're saying that my words are blasphemous. I'm claiming to be righteous when I'm not. I'm not speaking well of God, on and on and on. And i got two choices here. I can speak or I can shut up. But speaking or shutting up, I am still where I am. It doesn't make any difference whether I speak or whether I shut up. My circumstances are not changing. Verse 7. 
Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. Now remember we talked about fat before. Job is now skin and bones. So instead of having a nice healthy layer of fat to protect himself against all the slings and arrows of the world, he has now lost all of that weight. And God has taken everything from him to include his body fat. And by the way, that leanness of his testifies against him. Because remember earlier on we said being nice and healthy and plump is an indicator of prosperity. It is an indicator of favor. The fact that he is now skin and bones testifies against him. Nine, he has torn me with his teeth and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary opens his eyes against me. Who's his adversary? God. Remember this whole thing starts back in chapter one with a heavenly wager between God and Satan. So Satan is the agent of the things that are happening to Job. But it is God that has allowed this contest to proceed. Job is not privy to the fact that there's a contest going on. So from Job's perspective, God is doing this to him. Job has no idea that Satan's involved in the mix. I like to say this on every tape, just so it gets on there in case somebody listens to one. God has set Job up to do him great honor. At the end of the day, Job is going to have everything restored to him, double. He is also going to have a book of the Bible written in his name. Now, that is something that is very rare. In using Job as his pawn in this contest with Satan, in God's economy, the thing that Job is going to come out with at the end is worth everything that Job is going to go through. And since he's God and we're not, and God's perspective is doing this to Job is not being unjust. He is simply setting him up for a great reward. The fact that he does not know that there's a contest going on is of critical importance to the book. Because if he knows there's a contest going on, then his attitude is different. Then he becomes a martyr. In other words, I am putting my life on the line for God's glory, and it's my job to persevere, so I'm going to persevere. His attitude is completely different. Since he doesn't know about the contest, his attitude is, why are you doing this to me? So you'd have a completely different book if he understood that the contest was going on. Could also have been a good book, but that's not the book we're dealing with. So I am... Then verse 10, men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. Since I have lost all my wealth, I am being treated like a beggar. God gives me up to the ungodly. He casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sown sackcloth upon my skin. I have laid my strength in the dust. So the idea I've sown sackcloth on my skin, remember mourning is sackcloth and ashes. I'm so bad that I've sowed myself into it. I don't know what the idiom actually means, but that's what it sounds like to me. Verse 16. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. 
although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. So, again, I am in all of this innocent. 18. O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Now, what does that mean? Go back to Cain and Abel. Remember, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so what he's saying is, I am being dealt with unjustly. O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God. What he's saying is, God, I need you to be my advocate with God. So again, verse 20, my friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. My only hope is that God takes up my case with himself. 17, my spirit is broken, my days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. So this is by way of rebuke of Eliphaz and the rest of them. Lay down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there who will put up security for me? This is a change in focus. He's now speaking to God. Lay down a pledge for me with yourself. A pledge is, of course, security for a loan. So you, God, lay down a pledge for me with you, God. So lay down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. So what he's saying is very much like Pharaoh and God, you seem to have closed off my friends from understanding my situation. And that just makes my situation all the more bad. My friends can't understand me because you have closed off their understanding. I don't even have anybody to comfort me because you've made sure that my comforters are no comforters. Verse 5, he who informs against his friends will get a share of their property. The eyes of his children will fail. So what he's saying is, these accusations against me are unjust, and someone who informs against me as a friend is going to wind up getting a share of my property when I die. So they have a motive, if you will, for testifying against me. Verse 6, he has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirred himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. So now he switched back and he's talking to his friends. So we had this brief prayer in the middle where he's talking to God, essentially, and then he's talking out loud so his friends are hearing him. But now he's addressing his friends again. Let me try in verse 6 again and run through this. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled by this. 
and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. So the upright, who are his three comforters, are appalled by his situation. So the upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirred himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. So he's saying, you are not any comfort to me. I'm a byword in your eyes and so forth. And by the way, Job has become a byword. You've all heard the patience of Job, right? They say God did him great honor. Verse 11, my days are past, my plans are broken off. The desires of my heart, I don't see any way out of this. The only thing left for me is death. And the desires of my heart are not going to come to fruition. Because remember, he has lost sons and daughters. He's lost all of his wealth. And so all of the things that he would have wanted to pass on to the next generation are gone. He is in the process of winding down his physical life. And he sees no hope either for himself in this world or for a legacy. So this is pretty complete desolation. Verse 12. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Which is to say, him and his hope. This is absolute and complete brokenness, desolation. He has no hope, and he sees no prospect of any hope. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.